Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Boxes and Lines. Welcome to Shane Swanson. We Welcome. did not warn Shane that we were going to do this, but yes. Come back, Shane. Come back. Come back. <laughs> so our guest today is Shane Swanson. Many of you in the industry will know him from Coalition Greenwich. Um, a senior analyst there. And Shane's obviously been in the industry in a lot of other capacities before as well. Um, but today we're talking to him because IEX actually... Uh, commissioned Coalition Greenwich to do a market structure uh, survey because we're sick of getting guidance on what people think from John Ramsey. So we figured we'd ask <laughs> Shane <laughs> to ask their extensive client base. A very nice segue, Brendan. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, yeah. but it's, it is good to get feedback from the industry, and it was disclosed. We just we we asked them to ask uh, questions on a number of topics, both buy and sell side, and had some you know interesting answers. So welcome, Shane. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks. I appreciate you guys having me on today. Yeah, he might not say that 28 minutes from now, John, but anyway, <laughs> be nice, be nice. So, so I guess the, the, fir- the first topic that we want to touch upon is uh, retail trading. And obviously, you know, over COVID and particularly 2021, retail trading is a massive topic, but it still is, you know, where, where are we now? April 22, it's still a massive uh, topic and a lot of people ask questions on um, is his his retail trading going to dwindle his overall market share will it continue on um, and I know we had asked uh, you guys had asked obviously the industry a lot of different questions on retail just yeah. so for the benefit of our listeners if you talk about the people the universe of people that you talked to because um, the industry can mean like a lot of different things so kind of like what's the uh, what's the profile of the people that you contacted Sure. So for the study we did for IEX, we actually reached out to broker-dealers and institutional broker-dealers. Uh, it was actually a pretty good mix in terms of uh, size of institutions as well. So kind of the gamut from smaller firms all the way to firms over 5,000. So, um, yeah, this is a, I call it a very indicative study, kind of cross-section, across the industry. Were there findings uh, about the rise of retail or issues related to elevated retail trading? Other things that you found out uh, as a result of your survey that you think are worth sharing or that, or that surprised you about people's attitudes around increased retail trading? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's any surprise. I'll start with what's not surprising because <laughs> that's easier probably. <laughs> Uh, the you know with the move to zero commissions that happened prior to the COVID um, you know nightmare that hit everybody that had a huge impact on the movement of retail into the marketplace. But it was the combination of zero commissions, work from home. You know, there's some argument around whether or not gamification and the social media movement, plus there being just a whole new generation of investors whether that created kind of the perfect storm for this surge of retail we did see as COVID hit. And when we went out and asked these questions, that is, you know, what the responses were that, you know, zero commissions were a huge component of that, but the other pieces of that were definitely important. Interestingly, again, not the, from the respondent perspective, that the lockdowns were not the largest component of that, that they were the smallest. And I found that surprising. I would have said lockdowns 
probably were a bigger component. Now we have, you know, also asked, do we think that this is going to continue? Where where did the respondents see the market in retail going? Was it going to shrink? Was it going to grow? Was it going to stay the same? And as we, you know, we're asking these questions a few months ago now, it's kind of interesting because we kind of got a split opinion, right? Uh, almost evenly, 41% saying it was going to remain at the current market level, 41% saying it was going to recede back to pre-pandemic levels, and uh, Sliver saying 18% that it was going to continue to grow. Now, uh, we've looked at other market data out there, and while there's been some cooling in the equity market space, you know, certainly the options market hasn't cooled off. And if you look at, you know, in March of 22, just last month, small lot call buy volume was the largest percentage of, you know, the total equity volume since March of 2020. So oh. that is, um, yeah, I, the, and, the and, options and even, markets have just been on fire. Yeah, and even if it's cooled a bit in equity, it certainly is elevated compared to what was pre-pandemic. And it's not. Pre-pandemic, uh, without know. a doubt. Yeah. yeah, we've seen, and I, I think you've been, it's difficult to track with any you know, level of perfect precision about how much retail makes up of the overall marketplace. Uh, you'll hear differing percentages, and you know, depends on how you define retail. Are you doing double-sided or are you doing single-sided retail trading? But whatever, whatever metric you use, we can all agree it had doubled roughly during the pandemic. Uh, it has subsided somewhat from that, but it certainly hasn't gone back to pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. I'll ask one more question on the retail front, and then um, I'll allow uh, Ronan to deftly segue into the next topic. Um, Thank you, John. You're you're welcome. Uh, so, uh, give. I'm particularly interested in uh, attitudes about uh, the buy side and institutional brokers around um, the uh, ability, or, or rather, inability to really interact with much retail order flow now. I mean, from their perspective, not just the fact that retail has gotten sort of much larger, but there's still very few opportunities for institutional orders to interact with retail orders, which I would think if I were in their shoes would be a source of some frustration. Did you uh, detect any of that or any uh, um, uh, any thoughts around attitudes about uh, the, the ability to interact with retail? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it is something we've uh, asked about before and in this particular study, uh, you know, there is a, you know, at least a quarter of the respondents don't have any ability to interact with retail, whether that is directly through exchange programs, single dealer platforms, dark pool, they feel that they just have no access whatsoever. Uh, that said, there are, you know, 65% who are looking at some sort of exchange programs to have some access to retail liquidity. Uh, and then it kind of tails off. You have about 60% who are trying to get access through some sort of broker dark pool, and whether or not you can consider all of that as retail or not, the parameters around that can be challenging. And then there's some interaction through the single dealer platforms. And again, that's somewhat exhaust-driven, right? So if you're a single dealer platform you or you're a market maker and you have a single dealer platform, you may get some exhaust-driven retail flow. So before it goes off to the rest of the marketplace, at least you have one stop before it would go outbound. So there is some interaction there, but there is clearly some level of frustration that, you know, a fair uh, portion of the market is segregated away from kind of your standard 
uh, order flow and you can't access it, and yet you're bound by those executions for your, you know, TCA metrics as with any other execution. Yep. So I guess uh, a topic that's a question that's kind of always asked, but we have a SEC chair right now who's out there quite publicly talking about a lot of these topics. And, you know, as we near to the summer of 22, people think some proposals are going to come from the SEC as to what it is they're going to address. Um, don't need to necessarily touch upon what we think that that is, but from questioning uh, the industry, what, what were what were their thoughts on what Kensler should focus on, what they think he will focus on, what's not important? Uh, any feedback on that? Yeah, and you know, again, timing being everything, right? So we already know some of the things that we had asked about are already yep. on the agenda. So T plus one settlements out there, it's been and was one of the number one items that our respondents had, had addressed or, or said that they should address. But payment of order flow was uh, number two. So again, it's, it's kind of an interesting um, response where you have a number of people saying it's, they're not that you know, plussed or nonplussed about payment of order flow, but it's the second most important thing for the SEC to address. Again, the word address has a lot of uh, subtleties and shades to it, right? It doesn't necessarily mean they expect the FCE to come out and say it should be banned or you know, prohibited, but addressing can mean there should be more disclosure. So it is important that the, you know, the market had a chance to talk about that. Uh, then the other ones would be best execution obligations, uh, market concentration. So again, that comes to where you have off exchange and wholesaler uh, trading that again is not necessarily accessible to everyone. Uh, and then the ones that weren't as important were the cap funding model, although there has been a lot, lot of comments around that. I think people who are deeply embedded in cat issues pay attention or are very concerned about it. You're getting very insulted on this call right now. What do you yeah, mean? Cat is life. Uh, <laughs> right, Joe? Who are well, deeply embedded in cat issues wish that they had never heard of the fucking cat, but that's, uh, <laughs> but that's a different a well, different and, and as, for a different day. And as John well knows, I, I have a background uh, in cat as well. <laughs> We've all been scarred by it in one way or another, I think. Yes. Right. Uh, and then uh, enhanced short sale disclosures was actually the least important for the respondents in our group. So, uh, Interesting. But was one that the SEC has actually already started to address in some ways, right? More. And if you look at what the SEC has been promulgating, right? You can kind of see some channels that they're swimming down and enhanced disclosure across the board is just a big driver for this administration, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's in private funds, whether it's ESG, whether it's short sales or, uh, you know, again, you will see more and more disclosure. And I don't think that's going to stop whatever they do in payment order flow, which, you know, order handling across the board, you know, national market structure review, I expect disclosure will be a part of it in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, it feels like it will be part of it, but it feels like it won't end up being a satisfactory answer by itself. And um, it, it strikes me that of the items that many of the items that you just ticked off, payment for order flow or maybe uh, more generally kind of routing, potential routing conflicts of interest, best execution, and uh, market concentration or concerns around wholesaling 
all of those are kind of connected, you know, sort of all kind of part sort of part of a piece. You might throw in there, kind of uh, the the definition of the um, constitution of the uh, NBBO, um, how it's determined, and you know, extent to whether you whether there should be more trading activity represented in the NBBO. But all of those things seem to kind of circle each other uh, at some level. I, yeah, again, I think without a doubt, there's, you know, the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the complex weave of the market, right? All of those pieces are, you know, bound to one another. And, you know, you have to be cautious when you start pulling at one thread, how does that impact the others? But uh, at the same level, you can't be afraid to make changes. And I do say, you know, for one thing, we know this, this administration is not afraid to at least propose big changes. So we'll see where they right. come out on things. And, and people have been saying for a long time, you know, I mean, you and I probably get sick of hearing, you know, there needs to be a holistic <laughs> view, a holistic right. review. Yes, of, you know, of, but of a, they may actually get a holistic reform proposed at least, and uh, we'll have to see whether people like it or not. Now, the challenge on that might be if we get a holistic review proposed and you get 30 days to comment on it. That that uh-huh. might be a little ugly. Yeah, that'll be, that'll <laughs> yeah. be a little difficult. Actually, the, I noticed now on, on this survey on the topic of PFOF and gamification, not to necessarily come back to that topic, but what is interesting is that most people said that that was a topic where most people said it's most important and most people said it was least important. It seems like very uh, <laughs> black and white views. So when you were interviewing these people, I, I'm guessing there was strong opinions here. So. And again, it's one of these where there are diehard um, <laughs> and I would say intractable beliefs at times, right? When yeah. you get that again, the, there is an irreconcilable conflict. And when, you know, we ask about it, cause we'll probe a little and you would get an earful and, uh, yeah. and you know, some of the words used to describe it. Well, I, you, I guess we could use them on this podcast, but <laughs> on, on some others, you might not be able to, on the other <laughs> hand, you also say here, we're very loose as you know, you can use whatever you can. Yeah, just even when I look, I look at all the, the segments that you ask people about, that looks to be the one most polarizing where it wasn't really spread out. It was either like most important or least important. So. Least important. Yeah. And, it, and, again, it it is. Is, and at either uh, extreme, did the, um, uh, did the people at either extreme tend to uh, cluster in terms of one type of firm? Was it like larger firms were likely to be, uh, have one kind of attitude versus another Actually, uh, larger firms tended to be a little bit less concerned about payment forward or flow. Uh-huh. And yeah. then so you would find in the smaller firms having a bit more. And again, that it, it, there were there are I would say there are exclusions to that. But, you know, broad strokes. Yes. Larger firms would be a little bit more. It's either not as big a deal or you know we're not as concerned. Smaller firms tend to be on the it's more concerning. We think there are reconcilable conflicts. Cool. Yep. So let, let's go on to a, a, a hot topic, uh, exchange rebate tiers. And when we're talking about that separate to PFAF, we're talking about on exchange trading. Most every exchange pays a rebate, whether you're a taker or a man- maker, it depends on the exchange. Um, but also the exchanges, except IX, because we're, we're, we're God's people. But yeah. um, <laughs> most exchanges also will give you a higher rebate if you meet their top tier, and top tier usually means obviously more volume. But um, 
It looks on this, there was some pretty mixed opinions, but most opinions seem to be around this needs to be solved, whether through transparency or just uh, eliminated completely. Yeah, so again, this, that's exactly right. So on the exchange, and again, exchange rebate tiering, so specifically to, to your point where, you know, again, let's use the extreme example, which I think we've all known and have run across where an exchange can create a rebate tier that is literally only accessible for one, maybe two participants in the marketplace, right? Right. And when you There's get to that, a speculation about that, I should say, I have never heard an exchange or exchange executive deny that that in fact happens. So it's it's it is widely assumed that in fact that does happen <laughs> on a regular basis. I think mathematically, at times, it could almost be proven, right, that there yeah. are you know there are such you know extreme tiers that they could literally only be met by at yeah. very least a very small handful of firms. So yes. I'll go with that. And yep. so when you get to that level of stratification, we asked, you know, what are, what statements best reflect your feelings? And really the, you know, the top two were either, and the, and the number one answer was it could be the issues that are created here could be solved through increased transparency. And what does that mean? Well, I, you know, I've seen some beautiful, uh, graphics that have been created about the difficulties around navigating exchange rebate tiers and, um, you know, exactly how cum cumbersome it is and how many hundreds of pages you have to go through to be able to really understand what the landscape looks like. You know, there are in many firms people whose entire job it is to understand what is the landscape of, of fees out there. And if there was a way to simplify that and make it more understandable and transparent to the community, that would at least help. And so the number one concern there is, can it be helped and solved through transparency? And is it reporting from, you know, who are the firms that, you know, can access this or how many are hitting these tiers at each level? Some level of transparency there would be useful for the industry to be um, receiving. Yeah, it does feel, you know uh, this as well as almost anybody, um, Shane, that it is that the whole ecosystem around exchange transaction pricing and reading these friggin' rule filings, uh, you know, you'll go blind. I mean, literally, you know, like this cottage industry of people that are practically like medieval monks hunched over these things, trying to read this obscure language to try to figure out what it actually means for their business. It's and that's why we have John write ours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> medieval monk garb. Thank you, Mr. Weird. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well done. Well played. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, did I ruin your mojo there? No, no, He's that was totally fine. fucking spent. No, that was fine. No, <laughs> um, any general observations there, Shane? No, I, I, well, it's, I think you're 100 percent right. And again, that's that's one of the challenges. I think as we, you know, the industry becomes more complex. You know, you know, larger firms have the resources to be able to do that. One of the reasons why you see, I think, moves towards things like outsourcing and, you know, the use of other brokers is because you can just, you know, downstream some of that complexity as opposed to having to internalize all of it yourself, not inter internalize that right. me mechanism and the complexity into your own organization, I unless you have the wherewithal to actually spend, you know, okay, I'm going to have a FTE, a full-time employee who does nothing but know the arcana of how does an exchange write these rules? And then you have the firms that only do that, but then try to figure out, okay, how do I optimize to that? And where do the 
you know, where do I actually get extra VIG out of it, right? That is, you know, right. you know principal trading firms. And, and, a lot and of times the that around that are changing every month, too. So then right. you got to, like, keep track of all of the changes. <laughs> and and, sure. and I assume that part of, the, part, of, part of what goes on here, too, is that the economics of qualifying for the top tier may be so restricted that some firms may be outsourcing not just to have somebody else sort of figure out sort of way through, but but also to sort of take advantage of the ability of other firms uh, to, to qualify for the upper tier. 100%. Yeah, you have to have that aggregation effect, right, to be able to, and I mean, there's, a, there's without any question, you see a number of firms that have actually, again, built themselves around being able to provide that we can provide better economics than you can on your own because we can hit the larger tiers because yep. we have that size and, and that wherewithal. Uh, you know, the other, you know, the second answer, though, you know, that was 35 percent of the respondents, almost 30 percent, though, said that, you know, tiers should be eliminated. Um, and again, that's a pretty significant percentage of respondents. You know, you have a you know, nearly a third saying just get rid of tiers entirely, not necessarily get rid of rebates, but, you know, tiering itself. And at least I would say, you know, when you talk again, go back behind just that straight answer at least the level of the excessiveness that things have gotten to now. And, you know, every time we add another exchange and we add another, you know, yet here's another one that we've got to add to our matrix and how do we, how many rows can you put on this thing and are you doing it? Can you even do it in Excel anymore? You have to do it in some other, you know, you know, <laughs> programmatic format to be able yeah. to keep up with everything. Well. Well, I think it's clear to everybody that uh, we should have quit when once IEX was approved. And no news to exchangers should have been approved by that. After that, I think that's abundantly clear. All right, let's um, go to the soup du jour. The sexy topic of the day is crypto, <laughs> blockchain, DeFi, digital assets, all wrapped into one. But obviously, since since you uh, had done this study, Shane, you know we'd announced uh, re recently. A strategic partnership with uh, FTX and IEX is dabbling in the digital asset space. And, you know, one, one of the questions you'd asked was how the SEC's actions will affect digital asset investment, like both from the, the buy side and the sell side. And even since our announcement, we've had a lot of people call us and ask questions about what it is we're doing. And I, in turn, have sort of asked them back. Well, you tell me what it is you're doing, right? But I'd be <laughs> curious. <laughs> and then I'll tell you based on what you tell me. But I'd be curious what you heard when you were asking the industry sort of, are they prepping for this? Will they wait for SEC regulation? Gensler has been very, very publicly, you know, he's been out there all over the place about these things should be securities and thus should be regulated. Any, anything you, you got for us there? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, again, with, with the uh, Gensler administration has a very strong view, I think, about what their uh, position is on digital assets and what their authority is around them. It's still, however, I don't think the, um, you know, the, the industry doesn't feel that it's terribly clear what those parameters are. And without that clarity, you're going to always have some people who sit on the sidelines. So, you know, if, you know, if the SEC would provide that clarity, we had, you know, uh, you know, more than half of the respondents said they would be more willing to participate if the SEC is, uh, is providing some of that, you know, clarity and is, is vigorously regulating in the space. Where, whereas, you know, if you have, uh, you know, they'd be less likely to participate with just a, you know, small percentage or the decision wouldn't depend at all on that. 
we also have done other studies uh, since then, and the results are very consistent. Uh, when we looked at, again, we had a bi-side-only study that came out just recently where we asked the same question. If we had more certainty around regulation, would you be more likely to participate? And we had 41% of the respondents saying that they would be more likely. So we, we see that kind of drumbeat of with clarity comes participation and the lack of clarity will inevitably lead to people sitting on the sidelines. Well, that, that's what I think is really interesting and kind of like the yin and yang of this whole situation is that it, it's not just clarity, it sounds like, um, that this class of participants are looking for, but clarity that there is, in fact, uh, regulatory coverage of the area in, in ways that should give them some kind of comfort. Um, right. Yes. So this is. Yes. So so I think there are a lot of people, a lot of folks in the crypto industry that are like pushing back against assertions of SEC jurisdiction to say, you know, they're just they're they're unnecessarily um, blocking innovation or blocking the ability of the market to grow. But it does feel like there are a lot of people that would be interested in getting into the market more fully, but only if they have assurance that the right kind of regulatory guardrails are in place. Yeah, and again, the the challenge here is that this is not the current regulatory structure certainly isn't purpose built for this industry, right? Correct. Right. And yeah. we are all aware of it. But at the same time, you can't just say, well then nothing applies. There is no regulation. And you know, the crypto max maximalists will kind of use that language that well, it's decentralized, there is no one to regulate. It's just technology and technology can't be regulated the way you're saying it has to be. There has to be some medium position to take. Now, I think right now you have a tension because the SEC with its current rule set kind of has a position of the rules are what the rules are. We believe these are securities and there is only one answer because if it's a security, it has to be regulated the way securities are regulated, that may not be where it should end up or needs to end up for the you know, industry to grow and prosper in the you know, best way forward. But that is kind of where we sit today. And there are many people who aren't going to participate until that clarity, uh, you know, whether it's, yes, we are going to regulate and it's going to be regulated as a security under the current line guidelines, or the SEC will allow for some exemptions, or we'll have Congress come in and give us a you know, whole new regulator that does something unknown. But until that happens, you are going to see people sit aside. Now, we do see it's still growing, though, right? We still see participation on the upswing. And again, not to keep pulling in other things, but we did have a, an FA you know, survey where you know, we actually saw that um, – you know, 65% of FAs were asked about crypto. Now, that doesn't mean that 65% were actually doing anything in their, you know, for their, um, uh, yeah, their investors with crypto, but it's, it's growing. And, you know, 80% of FAs, and I think uh, it's similar across the industry, are all supportive of a spot Bitcoin ETF being approved. You know, those are just indicative signposts, right, of where we think the industry is going yeah should be going. Yeah, and, and, and it seems to me the way that you described the, uh, and, I, and I granted this, I think, is, the, uh, is a prevailing attitude, 
part of a lot of folks. But the way that you described people's the perception about the SEC attitude is, um, I, I strikes me as more binary than the truth may actually that you know it's either all regulated exactly like other types of securities are regulated today um, or nothing. You could, it seems to me you could make uh, room for some kind of reasonable accommodation, but to say, look, when you're selling securities, basic rules and principles about uh, you know. Uh, best execution and no front running and anti manipulation and anti fraud and um, you know those kinds of standards ought to apply. It seems to me that it's uh, it's hard to make an argument that those kinds of concepts shouldn't apply. I, I think you're right. And again, I think it's the the challenge for you know both sides is to try to delineate what exactly the you know the line is and how to get there, right? And so that's where you've got the SEC's open door, right? Where, hey, please come in and talk to us. If you're in the space, come in and talk to us. We want you to come in and talk to us because we want to try to craft the right thing going forward. But there's reluctance, I think, on part of the industry on the crypto side to do that because there's fear, well, if I come in and I tell you exactly what I'm doing and you disagree, well, then I might just get prevented out of the box and my competitors are going to go ahead and do it anyway. So where do I get the benefit? And that that's the you know, the problem, the challenge that, that is ahead of us right now is I agree with you. I think there is that medium road of there are certain principles that absolutely should apply in crypto as they do in you know the regular uh, you know securities market. But where does that okay, and then where do you say, but we don't have to identify you know every downstream owner because mm-hmm. it's impossible where do you where do you draw that line, and the SEC is reluctant to come out and say, bright line, this is what it is because I think right now the flexibility is on their side to say, well, we'll you know know what is wrong when we see it because yeah, we yeah. know what our rules are, and until it's forced. They have they have kind of the maximal power until it's you know either a legislation or a legal action draws it in. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, look, it, interesting times. Um, <laughs> you, 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 May you live in interesting times. I think that's a uh, Irish saying, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Cer- <there. laughs> it certainly is. Uh, it fucking seems to happen to me every time. But um, yeah. you're, you're a man who asks people a lot of questions. Other sayings that Ronan has taught me, but none of which are appropriate for repeating on this uh, podcast. So. <laughs> Go for it. We'll, we'll edit it out. No, we won't. <laughs> Oh shit! You caught on to us, and you still <laughs> shut up. <laughs> well, we, we, we have a question for you, then, Shane. In the spirit of asking questions, and it's a question we ask every guest on this podcast. So hopefully, we haven't blindsided you here. But can you tell us your favorite Wall Street movie and why? Well, I'll tell you. You know, I've got several, so I'll tell you my favorite Wall Street movie story. Uh, which is that I watched The Wolf of Wall Street and it's, you know, got some moments and talked to my brother about it. I was like, whew, that was, that was quite the movie. And he's like, yeah, I took my uh, teenage kids to see it because I didn't know any better. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, all right, you're like, a Dad, idiot. is that what you do? So that was, that <laughs> yeah. was, that yeah. was yeah. where I was like, yeah. You blew that one, man. So that's, that's kind of my favorite story on that. <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a unique one. Yeah. So, so try to be different. 
Your your special award for telling us that unique story. <laughs> <laughs> I see you very for hopes built up too much. Yeah, yeah. No more drum roll because uh, uh, might just tell us to shove them. But you get your very own pair of boxes and line socks. Oh, sweet! They're actually pretty good socks. They're very attractive and they're very comfortable. And all that we ask is that you take a picture uh, wearing them. Um, yeah. That we can then. We don't want uh, sockless feet pictures, but <laughs> yeah, that, no, socks no feet good. Maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, yeah. we, we, we appreciate you joining us. And uh, otherwise, uh, it, it's it's a, it's always good to use a firm like yourself and a person like yourself to sort of try and get a unbiased view on things and like. Uh, we're glad we got to do this and would certainly do this again with you guys in the future. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We enjoyed doing it as well. Well, thank you for being a good support and putting up with Ronan. We appreciate <laughs> well, it. Over and out. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Sarah Forster with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. Thank you.